This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, Scotland's House of Care. I think what we used to have with cough was a, a disease siloed approach to long term conditions care that was very much about ticking boxes and sometimes lost the importance of involving people. It's a whole change of culture for your practice and really you need to get the whole team and your patients on board with what you're trying to do. Hello, you're very welcome to another podcast from the Scottish National Users Group for GPIT. I'm Andrew McElhinney, I'm a GP in NHS Forth Valley. Now, how does your practice review patients with long-term conditions. How well do you do it? Have you struggled to organise this during the pandemic? And are you looking for some ideas on how it could be done better? In today's episode, we're going to be discussing an established and effective approach to the care of patients with long-term conditions. And that's based on what's known as the house of care. Over the next couple of podcasts, we're going to start to look at some of the ways we can provide better care to patients. As usual, we are interested in how information technology can help with all of this, whether it's by identifying patients needing review, maybe reviewing them remotely, or communicating more effectively, or just recording the correct information. But we're going to take a step back and think about what our philosophy is as healthcare providers. You're likely to be familiar with QOF, the Quality and Outcomes Framework, that was introduced across the UK in 2004 in the new GP contract. And that emphasised identification of and data collection for patients with chronic conditions. And it did at least promote a consistent approach to the review of patients with diabetes, vascular and respiratory conditions by all GP practices. But the house of care approach is different. Many GP surgeries are now adopting a care and support planning approach to long-term conditions care. This approach changes the annual check to an annual care and support planning review. At its heart is the development of a partnership approach between people with long-term conditions and their healthcare professionals. Its starting point is not the particular condition or any disease markers, but it's the active involvement of patients in developing their own care plans through a shared decision-making process with clinicians. The House of Care model started to be promoted in England about 10 years ago, with an initial focus on care of patients with diabetes but it has been expanded to provide care and support planning for people with multiple long-term conditions. And it's now in use in lots of practices across the UK. Now, a lot of things may have to be changed for a practice to do this, to help patients understand their conditions better, to give them better information up front, but crucially also to have better conversations about how they can be involved in managing their condition and helping them come up with their own action plans to improve their health and also set some achievable goals for this. So today, to unpack all of this for you, we're going to have a couple of discussions, first of all with Dr. Graham Kramer and Lindsay Oliver, and they're two of the leading figures who've been promoting this approach, both in England and Scotland, over the past few years. And then we're going to hear from Alison Fox, who's the practice manager of St. Tridwana's practice in Edinburgh. And they've been finding that the house of care approach and care support planning really does work well for them. But we're going to start with Graham and Lindsay. Well, Graham and Lindsay, welcome. Uh, could you both just first of all say a little bit about 
maybe what you both do and uh, where you're speaking from? Sure. I'm Lindsay Oliver. I'm the National Director of Year of Care Partnerships. So I'm south of the border in Northumberland right now. Um, and uh, we are obviously have been involved in the House of Care work in, in Scotland, supporting practices to implement care support planning. And I hope Storm Eunice isn't hitting you too hard today. I think we might get away with it. <laughs> well, I'm looking out and it's sort of trying to snow out here, but not quite managing. And Graham, welcome. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. So um, I'm Graham Kramer. I'm uh, um, was um, a GP most of my career in Montrose and Tayside. Uh, I also um, worked for Scottish Government for a few years on the self-management and health literacy agenda, and through that uh, became involved with the the spread and adoption of care and support planning um, through Scotland's House of Care program, um, trying to introduce the principles and practice of care and support planning to um, Scottish general practice. As I say, I retired in August. Shortly uh, around about the same time, the uh, House of Care programme, as it was formerly known, Scotland's House of Care programme, had its uh, funding finally dry up. So the programme itself um, no longer exists. It was a collaboration with um, Lindsay's Year of Care team, Scottish Government, and um, myself as, as clinical lead, and of course, the Health and Social Care Alliance of Scotland. I suppose the first things first, you know, do you prefer people to talk about the house of care, the year of care, care and support planning? I, I suppose I prefer people to get on and do it and not bother about what they call it, if I'm honest. But I suppose care and support planning is the is the universal term and, and house of care is the framework that you use to think about the things you need to do to implement it. And, and Year of Care is an organisation that supports it uh, in terms of having developed it and um, developed training and, and resources to support implementation. So can support plan probably for me is the, the, the term of choice, but doing it rather than talking about it, I think is my mantra. And I know we could spend quite a long time exploring what it's all about, but just really to put you on the spot, are you able to summarise it in a couple of sentences, what the approach is all about? Sure. Um, I'm sure Graham can add something as well. I think what we used to have with COF was a, a, a disease siloed approach to long term conditions care that was very much about ticking boxes, completing um, templates and sometimes lost the importance of involving people. Um, in managing and thinking through proactively what they do next to live with and manage their care and their self-management. Um, and care support plan for me was a way of restructuring the processes so that all of the task-based activity is separated from the care and support planning conversation. Um, and actually there's an opportunity for people to have results and preparation prompts between those two visits so that they can have more information learn more, ask more, and be much more involved and much more curious in terms of how they um, converse and speak with healthcare professionals. So to me, it's about creating the conditions for a much more collaborative partnership approach between people and practitioners. I think that's right. I think ultimately it's about having uh, better conversations so that when you are making decisions with um, the person in front of you. They're coming into that conversation having been uh, really well prepared. They've seen all their um, results and they've had a chance to think about the things that they would like to talk about. And it completely changes the script um, of the conversation. So people are much more, as I say, um, engaged and um, more can see the problems for themselves much more easily and um, really 
seem to be in the driving seat and, and, and come out with solutions for themselves that are not necessarily related to uh, more tablets, looking for much more holistic and community-based solutions, what we call more, more than medicine. So I think that's a, um, a key, that's the thing I loved about it was the, the, you know, completely um, different conversations and, and, and the person you're having a conversation with taking the lead um, and it opens up um, whole new possibilities in the management of people and better outcomes actually. So, so that's uh, the positive thing about it, yeah. Yeah, and what I remember as our practice tried to do it was changing a lot of mindsets away from a, a single disease review type model, say for diabetes, and then you, you might have that and then you might have somebody with hypertension or COPD going to another review, trying to have a single yearly review and breaking that down almost into two parts where the first visit is all about maybe information gathering, getting bloods done or whatever, and then sending the information to the patient before they came for that conversation so they're much better informed and you can then set the patient's goals and agendas you know as part of the the management and and you can describe that but actually doing it whenever you've been used to a different way of doing things for years is is quite a change what extent do you see that happening graham i mean in in scotland say you know do, do you think many practices have moved to that Probably not as many as we, we thought uh, or hoped. Um, I mean, I think we, we spent quite a few years really getting around to um, a huge number of practices across a broad range of, of um, health authority regions in Scotland. And we spent a lot of time um, training um, practitioners. And I think we, we saw a varied response. So we, we had um, certainly people were taking on board the the principles and and, and beginning to um, adapt their practice to this uh, new coordinated way of working. There were bumps in the road. Um, I think some practices um, picked it up very quickly and ran with it. Um, And I think others struggled. I I definitely think with the pandemic coming along, um, I think that sort of derailed um, a lot of practices. But, But I think there's, there's still that general enthusiasm and I think there's that there's this general perception that this is the way to go and if um, with continued support um, I think more practices will 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 continue their journey down developing this process. Thanks I mean I guess it's a patient-centered sort of realistic medicine type approach isn't it? Lindsay you've still got quaff in England do you do you see practices taking on this approach in tandem with that? Yeah, sure. Practices are still sort of looking to adapt this. So we've, we've got practices who've been running in this way for a good decade or so now, and it's just very normal practice. They might have started for single conditions, but they've created a single pathway for people with single and multiple conditions. So, so it, it still fits with practices who use a, a cost approach, because in, in a sense, the um, separation of the tests and the information gathering ticks most of the cloth boxes. And in fact, when we designed this new pathway, we wanted to make sure, because we knew general practice wouldn't go for anything that meant cloth got worse, um, that actually we made that a part of this process. Um, It's just that we chose to separate it out so it didn't become the reason to do everything, um, which I think, you know, it had become. And, and, you know, I went back into primary care um, after a gap and cough had come in and I was really quite distressed to see how how templates were driving conversations really uh, and and so to some extent yes this this still happens in England practice of the moving over 
Um, the pandemic has put, as you say, long-term conditions care on the back burner. But for me now, this is a way to, if, if everything's been a bit, has fallen apart again, then why not reconstruct things in a different way, move forward in a different way? I'm sure that's where we are at the moment. In, in terms of, you, you've both done lots of training with practices, in terms of the reorganisation that's needed, how do you gauge whether a practice is ready to do this or not? For me, it's about whether a practice pitches a whole team up and that they've already done some groundwork to get people enthused and interested in this. And for me, it requires both the clinical leadership and practice level, but actually also the organisational um, practice management buy-in together. And I think when you get those two things working together in a functional practice who can make changes, actually, you know, you see this being implemented relatively quickly. Um, so, and, and I think the most successful practices have clinical leadership, administrative leadership, and they have a task and finish group who implement the changes bit by bit um, and continue to meet afterwards once they've got things up and running just to do that sort of reflection and, and refining of things. So, so I think it's about being able to see a vision of how things could be and then being able to bring the team on board and do the detailed work around implementation. If people aren't able to get the full training and, and do the whole thing, I'm wondering, are there degrees to which practices can do it gradually or is it an all or nothing thing? You know, for example, the big change we made was sending results out to patients before they, they saw the nurse. I've seen practices who do that and for whom it doesn't seem to work, not really thought through the detail of how you engage people with this change. So, for example, I see healthcare assistants um, not only as doing all of that information gathering, but it's been a bit of a front door to the whole process and really engaging people in the preparation element of care support planning and, and encouraging people to bring their, their issues and ideas to the second conversation. And, and I think there are sort of lessons that you learn from working with lots of practices who got it wrong and got it right. You sort of get a sense of from training and facilitation. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you could do it incrementally. I think that it has to be significant enough change for the amount of work you're doing to feel like it's having an impact or the practice don't then want to continue doing anything else. So there's some risks with an incremental approach. But, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's something to try. I think also a, um, a sort of a key sort of critical factor is is the um, the training around um, particularly the nurses because it's that they're doing the broad um, management of chronic illness chronic diseases is it, really um, it, it is it is a different type of conversation um, it really does um, involve sort of goal setting and action planning um, very different from the sort of task-based process of COF and, and and I think developing those skills um, is, is is really crucial um, and I think sometimes it does flounder when um, people don't have their skills I found an article that you'd written uh, using the metaphor of a dance, uh, which I thought was interesting, you know, for the conversation. And it, it made me think, I mean, we spend, what, maybe three years for GPs training, you know, to learn capabilities around data gathering, good communication skills, being able to balance priorities. You know, th there's a lot in all of that decision making. 
And, and we're almost asking the nurses to just pick that up overnight to something, or maybe after a couple of days training. So it's a big ask. And I, I think practice nurses and GPs, actually, in fairness, can struggle with that. So I suppose like dancing, you know, some people do it better than others. I agree. I think it's, um, I think we underestimate the amount of skills involved in having a, a care and support planning conversation um, and, and really sort of trying to use lots of skills in different contexts with different patients to really sort of not take over into that fix-it mode that we always want to have people going out the door with a solution. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think it's really hard. And to add the, the, the layer of multiple long-term conditions into the pot um, as well, I think is quite a, a quite challenge for practice nurses, but it's just beautiful when the dance is great and it works well. So I think really there is a role for GPs to support practice nurses with some of this as well. I think one of the things that I've noticed is that GPs have sort of stood back from long-term conditions care quite a bit. Um, and so that sort of helicopter view as a patient with all of the other things going on, I think gets a bit lost. And I think some of the sort of skills that GPs have, sharing and supporting practice nurses to develop those through supervision, I think is a really important thing to think about for house of care practices actually to make sure that actually we're seeing that change in the philosophical way we work with people but also the skills that are used as part of the conversation and would you see even a role for joint consultations with gps and nurses at the start to to try and develop an approach why not yeah i think that's a great idea um i, I think one of the things that i've done in my career is done joint consultations and you always learn from the way people phrase things how they approach things um, so I, I think that's a really great idea working alongside at very least. Um, Year of Care produced some consultation videos I think are really really helpful because they really allow people to see what the difference is for this different type of consultation model. I mean most of our training Andrew as GPs really you know all the sort of consultation models around um, Pendleton and Neighbour and people like that they're very much around the sort of diagnostic of inquiry of acute illness we never really sort of learned the skills I think for for dealing with you know long-term conditions where you you know you can't fix people as such you you can just enable them to uh, adapt and self-manage and, and that is a different skill set and and, uh, and the year of care videos are really really useful um, as training resources to help people get started and just see the difference We've tended to move towards an approach where maybe if, if there's patients that are more complex with maybe, f say, four or more multimorbidities, that maybe the GPs will have those conversations, um, and particularly for more frail or housebound patients. But I think what I see happening then is that GPs, like you say, Lindsay, they, they feel de-skilled in, in things like diabetes or COPD management. So you can have the overall view and maybe focus on pain management or, or, or you know some other aspect of frailty but then we still have to worry a bit about their things like their diabetes and COPD don't we? Yeah I think so um, I, I, I think different practices have different levels of, of skills and, and, and in a sense there's a decision for each practice to decide around how they triage different patients so one of the things that we've suggested in terms of the process is that between the information gathering review and the conversation, there's a little bit of triage that goes on to try and work out from a continuity point of view and a relationship point of view, but also an issue point of view, which patient and which practitioner might be best 
suited to have the care support planning conversations. Um, but I think that's an opportunity to do some supervision as well, to, to talk about some of the uh, things that might need to be picked up, maybe including things like the new pharmacists in, in practices as well as part of that conversation. Because in a sense, having the opportunity to talk about patients is how we probably learn about and keep our skills going as well. So I think different practices have different constitutional parts in terms of staff and different skills. And I think, yes, there are patients who probably should see a GP, but I think nurses can really grow their skills as well. It's it's a fascinating time because, as you say, the practice teams are getting ever bigger with different skills and different people. And then the other thing I just wanted to talk about was the effects of the pandemic, because obviously it's caused massive changes and disrupted you know, reviews for a lot of patients with long-term conditions. What we've seen is much greater use towards things like use of the phone, maybe use of video consultations, collecting information from patients online. I wonder, from a technology point of view, what, what do you think can help us do this better? I think from a tech, we, we've certainly spent quite a lot of time thinking about how to keep long-term condition care going using the house of care approach. I think one of the advantages is actually that we've centralised the appointment for all of the um, task-based activity and physical tests into a single appointment. So it's a huge advantage. And I think it's meant that house of care practices have kept going during the pandemic. And we've also spent quite a lot of time thinking about how you maintain the ethos and the equivalence of a care and support plan conversation down the telephone. And I think there are things that you need to do differently if you're having a telephone consultation around the skills. Um, so I think video consultation could be useful. My sense is that people either prefer to be seen face-to-face or have a telephone review. But I do think technology in terms of sharing results with people, people sending back some of their information is actually a great augment to the whole process. But we need to think about preparation as not being a process in which people give us information that we want. If preparation is about people having a chance to think through things and come up with the topics that they want to talk about. So to some extent, I worry a little bit that we're using technology to shortcut some of the processes rather than actually truly prepare people for the conversations they're having. If I was to be honest, my greatest regret with the House of Care programme is that we didn't find a way nationally to come up with a a way of, of sorting out the IT system so that the preparation element was just so much easier for practices to do um, and the information gathering templates were sort of more universally available for practices who wanted to implement this approach for multiple long-term conditions. So I think there's a lot of digital work that could be done to make it easier for practices um, and enhance the experience for patients. But we may have some other thoughts. Yeah, I agree. I mean, really, all our computer systems really have been set up for um, for practitioners and the practice to be able to share information, um, and they've they've never really been set up to share that information with with our patients. And and I think as we move forward, it'd be really useful to to look at how we do that. I mean, obviously, there's. Um, clinical portals or patient portals can access their data and things like that, which is um, a really useful development. But but Lindsay's always said, and I've agreed that actually, you know, um, a lot of patients actually value getting a sort of a hard copy um, of their their information. 
perhaps presented in um, uh, literacy and sensitive formats which have uh, meaning. Um, we've found little graphs and traffic lighting uh, showing previous results as well. It can be really, really useful with some simple information that goes along with that. And, 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 and so I think we've got to find a way of, of not going too technical uh, a bit of paper um, that, that gets to the person in the post is, is is really really valued and something that they can share with their loved ones and, and if they don't understand it they can um, uh, you know a family member can help them go through that and that's really really valuable and they, and they, they bring it along to their 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 conversation with their healthcare professional as well it's, it's a re- it's a really useful thing much much better than a computer but using technology to produce um, these things is, is really important so we can transfer our data into a patient uh, sensitive format and I think it's interesting what we've seen tends to be that patients are a bit nonplussed maybe the first year you do this and they receive all this stuff in the post and aren't quite sure what it all means. But maybe year after year they start to get used to it and it starts to have more value as they, as they start to actually understand it better. That's exactly what we found the first year people needed. You were really mostly explaining what everything meant the first year round, which is a bit of a surprise because I thought we'd been explaining it every year before that. Um, but it was the second year that sort of seemed to have more meaning for people. Uh, I, I think we overestimate the information that we give people verbally and how much it's understood. Yeah. Um, writing it down seems to make it more concrete. People seem to have time to process it. And then it, it, it sort of creates this curiosity to, to ask questions rather than us telling people stuff that they're not interested in. It's really interesting. And, and I suppose from a technology point of view, if there are things like templates, documents that we can collect in snug, you know, which is for GPIT in Scotland, we could potentially try and make some of those available. You've been, you've both been really good uh, for having this, this chat today. Um, I did say I'd try and keep it relatively brief. I suppose just the, the last thing I'd like to ask is for practices that do want to do this in the future, what's the best way for them to find out more about it? I think, um, Perhaps initially at the moment is really to um, put people in touch with Lindsay and her team of the Eurocare Partnerships. And so I think I think that would be a, a first point of call. I, I think a lot of practices will be in regions that um, have already experienced care and support planning. And, you know, if they can get in touch with um, local practices that have been uh, through training and things like that, that would be a very useful um, starting point. Uh, but I'm sure Lindsay will be able to put them in touch if they don't know who they are. And um, yeah, and, and, I, and I suppose, you know, there are sort of um, some resources online and, and, and videos and things like that that can help people you know, get more information and get started. We do have a, uh, a House of Care Scotland um, Twitter account, which I run now, and um, people always get in touch with me through that as well. And I'll be happy to, to signpost them. Certainly from a care point of view, we obviously have started to we've moved our training which used to be face-to-face Andrew because I think you've been through it and um, we've, we've moved that to to delivering it remotely by team so we're currently working with some fantastic practices up in Shetland which would have been quite hard um before so so we've got different ways of doing things um and, and greater flexibility but yes without the sort of sponsorship from Scottish government it isn't quite as easy as it was but we're still here we haven't gone away and we're still doing care and support plan and support for practices anywhere who he wants to really 
Oh, that's fantastic. It's disappointing the funding's been reduced or taken away in Scotland, um, but it's, it's really good to know that there's still that opportunity for practices that are interested. And hopefully, as you say, the more people that do it, it can cascade out a bit and, and people can learn by, by speaking to other practices. Well, listen, thank you both very much for this conversation. It's been really appreciated. And um, yeah, I do think rebuilding our approach to how we manage long-term conditions is going to be so important. And um, I think House of Care is, is a really important part of that. So thank you both very much. No problem. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. I am Alison Fox. I'm practice manager at a practice called St. Trigiana's Medical Practice in the northeast of Edinburgh, just on the edge of the city, looking out uh, to the coast at Portobello. So quite a nice spot. Um, I suppose this, the topic we're talking about today is something we've had a great deal of interest in in our practice for the last couple of years. And I think for us, it's been interesting speaking to other people about it because we did some work on it pre-pandemic. And I think that's given us a lovely platform as we come out of the pandemic to sort of know what we're doing. You know, it is something I enjoy talking about. And, you know, I think hopefully by sharing these messages, it will help practices who are at that stage and thinking, well, what do we do next? Where do we go with our long-term condition management? Yeah, does it feel a bit more like springtime now in Edinburgh? Oh, suddenly yesterday, well, Sunday we had a gorgeous day and yesterday just was lovely. And uh, I'm sure it will lull us into that false sense of security and it'll be snowing tomorrow, but it's nice to feel we're at that end of winter and beginning of spring. Indeed. So so let's talk about care and support planning. Um, could you tell us a bit about what drew you to that approach in the first place? And you know what the main drivers were for that for you? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I suppose the backdrop at that time, we were sort of coming out of quaff and thinking, OK, where do we go next? And already had quite a lot of thoughts around, you know, this model isn't person or patient centred. Uh, there was lots of disease silos. And uh, at that time as well, we were really quite inspired by realistic medicine and the house of care model as well. And I suppose what I would describe as, you know, care and support planning and the processes that we put in round about that are our sort of, were our mechanism and our, our process for meeting some of those wishes to be certainly more person-centred. Uh, and also a want or a desire really to involve patients in their care and their, their health as well. So the fact that you know, I really describe the sort of care and support plan as the sort of process and the processes around it sort of felt it met the, the needs of the practice team here who had been so used to something being very structured and cough and didn't really feel they could just go from having that to having nothing and then knowing what they how they wanted to structure things with their patient. Yeah, and we found certainly in our practice that you needed buy-in clinically and organisationally. You know, it affects really the whole approach to managing long-term conditions. Absolutely. Um, you know, we always yeah. say it was, it was a whole team approach for us. You know, everybody at the practice had a part to play in that. It wasn't something that just the uh, practice nurses and our healthcare assistants looked after. It was everybody, including our patients. You know, we involved our patients in the design of that as well. And, you know, we invested a lot of time and energy at that time to involving everybody and to thinking about what we wanted to do. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that really 
sticks in my mind at that stage was you know gaining agreement across our clinical team about what we should do that was quite tricky as well and something that we didn't rush through you know there wasn't just like a few of us at the practice that were interested in this we didn't rush through that stage we took a bit of time at that point to get everybody on board and you know and, and actually it ended up being such a good thing for the practice because it really bonded us together as a team as well so it was a really a really positive experience and and lots of big organizational changes that need a lot of preparation could you pinpoint the biggest organizational change maybe moving from quaff to this realistic approach yeah well i suppose as I said there, one, one of the big things was actually gaining agreement about what we would do and not being, you know, that can be quite tricky and it stops you moving forward. But once we'd invested that time and gained agreement, we, we had to somewhat invest more time into then saying, well, there's a lot to organise here. You know, be that templates on our system or how we're going to actually invite our patients in. We, we moved to a, a structure where we would do our information gathering appointment and then have a further appointment that would be where we would talk about care and support planning and figure out what mattered to the patient and, you know, what the plan would be going forward. So that was quite a change for us. There was loads to organise. And I suppose I think one of the key things that made that a success for us is that we didn't try to just do that alongside their day job. We actually invested in some extra admin time at that point, just for a short period of time, and let somebody focus on spending some time getting ready for this without a, a day job to run alongside that. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that struck us was it was a new approach for nurses, particularly yeah. doing less maybe tick boxy stuff and more just conversation. What's important to the patient could take them into uncomfortable areas. So it was a, a whole new approach for the practice nurses, which I think takes time. And, and also we maybe had to involve GPs doing reviews for more complex patients. Yeah. I don't know if you would have done that as well or if your nurses would do all the reviews. Well, in a way we do a sort of, in a way, a layering model of people working to the top of their licence. I think it would be the phrase that people would recognise. So, you know, our healthcare assistants doing our what we would describe as our sort of level one reviews and um, so that was at the time when that role evolved for us from a purely sort of phlebotomy role into a role that was managing and talking to people and uh, patients about lifestyle changes and then from that you know the next layer that our practice nurses would look after but the way that we structured things at our practice is that we're recalling patients that many practices that I've spoken to are using a birthday month, but we're actually using the medication review date that's in our the EMIS system that we use as our point of deciding when our patient we would recall our patient. And what we try to do is get them to come in to start this sort of annual part of this process a month before the medication review. So from a GP's perspective. They, they may be looking at the more complex patients and lots of what needs to be attended to for that patient is already done. And then and in a way, then they're layering on some of the more complex aspects. So and that that's changed over time. And actually, our practice nurses are now getting involved when there's aspects of frailty or things that maybe they traditionally would have been looked after by the GP. But the GP's topping that up effectively to make sure that if there is any complex aspects, they're looking after it. But it's an efficient use of their time because by the time they're reviewing that patient, all the things that other people could have done have been done. So mm -hmm. we find the model 
you know, works really well for us on an organisational and an efficiency basis as well. And then it's getting our teams working really well together to sort of come together and, and care for our patients. I suppose the other thing that sprung to mind there is we did spend a lot of time encouraging our nurses and giving them confidence to ask the patient what matters to them, but knowing that actually they had a team around them to support them if there was things came up that weren't necessary, that they weren't necessarily the best person to um, support with. And, you know, we were doing this at the time when our primary care improvement plan was starting to evolve as well. And we were starting to see new professions at the practice. So, for instance, we had a mental health nurse at that time. So it meant that if the nurses were getting into a territory that wasn't necessarily their specialism, they felt they had colleagues at the practice that they could rely on to support them as well. And it gave them the confidence to not shy away from those discussions with patients. And the evolving nature of general practice means that things are constantly moving forward and we do have more resources and, and, and all that. Yeah. So, so apart from the, the widening practice team, I suppose the, the other major change we've had in the last couple of years has clearly been the pandemic. How, how did you manage to keep things going? Well, we had a, a, a short period at the very beginning where we paused. And I think that maybe ran from about the March till the June. But in the June, when things started to open up again, we started to think about well what should we be doing at this time uh, and we we made a decision that we couldn't necessarily offer a care and support planning for the whole of the population that we were prior to the pandemic at that stage but we were saying well we need to prioritize here and we had to and we actually brought our gps into that process as a sort of a sort of triage to say well look how do we identify the priority patients and start some of this process again? And I think, you know, technology came into it at that point because um, it was the time when we were starting to use Teams and that kind of thing and near me and, you know, just be able to actually say, well, that we can, because we'd split our appointments between the information gathering side and then the conversation, the good conversation with the patient, we were able to still do the information gathering face to face, but do some of the conversational parts using phone or video. So, and then really just, I suppose last autumn was when we moved fully back to our previous process where we just started looking at our whole population and going back to who we would have called in before. And we made a decision at that point not to get too hung up on the backlog of people we hadn't seen, just to move forward, seeing people when we would next be scheduled to see them, but also still layering on that triage from the GPs so that if there was somebody that needed to be seen more urgently, we would pick them up at that time as well. Oh, that's really interesting. And apart from the sort of remote consulting by video, Another thing that's taken off a bit during the pandemic has been online data collection. Yeah. So asking people to submit data online. I mean, do you see do you see a bigger role for that kind of thing in the future? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think it, I think you know what this time has proven to us. It's really popular with our patients. You know, people are used to that aspect now being in place in all aspects of their life. So, you know, the fact that it's there for health as well, and they can gather information and submit it to us. I suppose the big example for us is, you know, blood pressure monitoring, and we're 
at the practice part of the Florence project that I don't know if that's a local or a national thing, but um, that you know that, that there's a whole mechanism in terms of prompts to patients and the ability for them to take readings and and report them back to us, and for that to fit into our processes and protocols. Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating time for shaping care of long-term conditions in the future, isn't it? Yeah, the good thing about what we're describing there is it works for us, the clinical and the admin teams, but also really works for the patients and it's popular with them. So I definitely think we'll see more and more of that. And I think what we've experienced, I don't know if you have, it, it takes patients in maybe a year or, or two to kind of get used to the idea. But once it keeps happening year after year, they, they, they do get used to it and they value it. Exactly. And that's a really good point because we are now several years into this process and we found that, you know, initially a lot of patients were saying to us, well, you know, what's happened to the old model where the nurse did all the talking and I wasn't asked all these questions and uh, and uh, you know our nurses needed support at that time because I think they were worried about um, not actually fulfilling aspects that were required in terms of our information gathering but what we tried to describe is that you know we want to try and see us working together with our patients and building relationships to help them manage their long-term conditions rather than it being transactional and you know we've got this appointment and we have to cover every aspect of their care you know it was it was an ongoing relationship rather than just a transaction for that particular day yeah yeah and that that's really important and you know my my um, nurses will tell stories about patients that really just didn't get it at the beginning and were quite resistant to the change but come the next review or the next one again we're really really engaged in it really interested and to me that's that's you know a success story Absolutely. And it takes investment of time and, and persistence really to get to that point, doesn't it? Exactly. So what would your top tips be for a practice who, who's interested in doing this? Um, a couple. I think I think some of those top tips really from me understanding where maybe practices have tripped up a bit when they've tried to get started. And I think the thing for me is whatever you agree to do, make sure it's scalable to the population that you ultimately want to serve. So there's no point, I mean, we started with a little cohort of uh, 10 patients in a project that was funded by the British Heart Foundation. But what we tried to do from the beginning was set something up that we could do for all our patients, not just for the 10 patients. For example, you know, there was no point in saying, look, let's have, you know, 40 minute appointments with our practice nurse, because it's just not something that was scalable and we could offer to everybody. So I think, you know, always, always have that in mind when you're setting your processes up, have that end goal in sight. And, you know, and it, I suppose that links into the backdrop of not feeling like you have to achieve everything. You've got a set amount of time, you know, how can we make the best use of that in, in a way that we're building a relationship with our patient and we're supporting them in terms of them managing their long-term conditions, knowing that, you know, it's not just a one-off opportunity, it's going to be an ongoing situation. And, and I suppose the other top tip would be that thing of involving the whole team, not just seeing this as something that, you know, an interested GP and your nursing team will look after. It's It's a whole change of culture for your practice and really you need to get the, the whole team and your patients in that team as well on board with what you're trying to do. 
Yes. And we, we know the training is still available via Lindsay and her team in Northumberland. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about maybe trying to make some of the tools that we use available. Like I know you've got a CSP template for EMIS. We, we've got some document templates for sending results out to patients before their conversation. And I, I think Snug certainly would want to try and help make these available for practices who are interested in the house of care approach. Would you support that? Absolutely. And we, you know, I've done a lot in terms of sharing what we've developed because, you know, I said earlier on we'd invested some time in that and that was fine. But if there's things that we can share that are going to save practices a bit of time or really just help them jump a couple of steps forward and get started, then then absolutely. You know, and I think there's been some interesting debates as well, because I, I believe there's various different software packages out there now that are being designed to support with the management of long term conditions. So it's, I think it's it's an it's an interesting time anyway in terms of systems and what will happen in the future. But I think you know this is this is a hot topic just now. And when we started, we 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 started really from a blank sheet of paper and building our own templates, etc. But I think yeah, de definitely there's lots of opportunities now to to share and collaborate, and some of that's already happened as well. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose underlying it all has to be the understanding of the system. You know, the, what the House of Care is all about is really helping the patient prepare, helping them to set goals and, and make practical action plans and, and keep reviewing them. But I suppose the tools and the templates have to be used against that understanding. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I suppose, links back to the training. And I think there is sometimes I think practices are going to have to sort of search out and find that training. Um, mm -hmm. I know when we've discussed it before we practice that there's been a lot of questions around that. You know, we did have the support of training. We um, were able to access some bite-sized sessions as well, which we found really useful and manageable for our nurses team as well, you know, around the sort of good conversation aspects, uh, around, as you say, understanding the principles of house care, realistic medicine. You know, that learning inspired us to sort of move forward with this. Yeah. Well, we're hoping to have a discussion about it at the Snug Conference in May. So um, it'd be good to yeah to tap into your own knowledge and experience as much as we can, really. Sure. Uh, that's great. Well, listen, thanks a million for speaking today. And um, one one final question, I just wanted to ask: Who who was Saint Triduana? Oh, it's it, it, it's an interesting story, but quite a gory one. So there's a little church close to us, the Church of Saint Triduana, and. Um, she it was unrequited love and she gouged her eyes out and put them on the stakes on top of this church it's quite a google it and have a look at the story but it's it, <laughs> it's not one for little children not for the faint-hearted <laughs> not for the faint-hearted lots of people can't you know they, they struggle with saying St Trigiana so we're, we're called St Trids a lot for short as well I often say it was when I started here as practice manager it was one of the most challenging things to actually pronounce the name of the practice so excellent well listen thanks a million for for having the chat today no problem nice to speak to you bye now so loads of stuff to get your teeth into there I hope that's given you a greater understanding of why it is well worthwhile looking to using the care and support planning approach for your patients with long-term conditions. We've linked to two short videos in the episode notes. One is from Angela Coulter at the University of Oxford, giving a short overview of the evidence underpinning the year of care approach. And there's also an example from the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland, or more simply, the Alliance, with a couple of patients from Glasgow describing their experience and it really is well worth spending 10 or 15 minutes to take these on board because they capture what the whole thing is about. 
You can also look at some of the other links as these show a bit about why people like Lindsay, Graham and Alison come across so passionately about why care and support planning really is effective and worthwhile. So that's it for this time. Plenty of material online for you to look at. You can contact us at Snug or our speakers today, Graham and Lindsay, are both on Twitter. I've given their details below. And if you're interested in looking, you'll find a whole community who are interested in and have lots of experience of care and support planning. And we're all very happy to discuss things further if you're interested in bringing care and support planning to your practice. It is hard work, but your patients really stand to benefit. Hoping to talk a bit more next time about the management of long-term conditions and going to look at tools for data collection and online management. And just to say, we're hoping that Lindsay and possibly Graham might join us for the Snug Members Day, which will be on Wednesday, May the 25th. It's going to be virtual again, which does mean it's easier for people to attend, but we do still hope to see everyone face to face at the conference in November. Keep watching the Snug website for more details. Right, that's it for today. Been a bumper episode. Speak to you soon. Thank you.